This week on Broadway for Sunday, September 8th, 2019. My name is James Reno, and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. So, Michael, you uh, are working 42nd Street really heavily, and you came across some very interesting information. <laughs> and working it in the good way. I didn't even... Working it in the post-Disney theatrical era, not the pre-Disney... I oh boy! The, well, okay. I lived through the seventies, uh, <laughs> you know, in forties on forty seven. I lived through Beverly Hills. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so anyway, I'm blushing here. You can't really tell it through a uh, microphone, but um, Michael, tell us uh, before I dig myself in deeper what you heard. Oh yes, I have um, a news item, totally unofficial, but from a very reliable source, that uh, beginning next June, June 2020. Uh, the American Airlines Theater will be closing for a huge renovation, uh, which surprised me because I, I looked it up. I, I thought to myself, gee, that theater is not that old. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it opened in 2000, uh, previously the Selwyn, and it completely, completely renovated. Uh, so I'm told it's going to be, I believe, again, this is all unofficial, no announcement yet, but a $17 million renovation. And... Uh, among other things, I, I suppose I heard, heard it will include the public spaces, uh, the patrons lounge upstairs, the bathrooms, and also also new seats, which mm. there again, uh, you, you know, 2000 is not that long ago, but whatever. I, I, I wonder if um, there have been complaints uh, or, I, I, you know, I, I wonder what ex- specifically what has renovated this decision. But uh, so uh, that's what I heard. And we'll see if it's true. But it certainly sounded like it's going to be. Well, I can only think of one thing that has changed from 2000 to 2019 is that I am wider. So maybe <laughs> there maybe we need some wider seats there for me. I share your pain. Um I hope that they'll be nice enough if they're getting rid of those seats to donate uh, them to theaters that could really use them uh, mm-hmm. off off Broadway theaters would be nice. I remember Drew Jamson re- renovated the theater once and and did give their seats away to uh a company um I forget who it was. This was <clears throat> in the 90s but um so roundabout think about that. Make a nice gesture and give those seats to somebody who could really use them. Is the American Airlines one of the theaters where all the seats are sponsored? They have little plaques on them? 
Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. If you get to keep your seat or if you get the new seat that comes in or is it a <laughs> a new a new form of revenue for them? <laughs> sure, good point. Mm. Mm. You know. <laughs> there's a talk that the 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 uh, David Koch Theater up in Lincoln Center is going to be renamed, isn't it? Oh, really? I mean, I had read a lot of people say they hope that might happen now sure. that he is deceased, sure. but sure. I, I didn't know if there was any actual movement to do that. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. he and his brother were so close. I hope they get to see each other soon. <laughs> so, gosh. I mean. One brother leaving another one, that's sort of a betrayal, isn't it? Oh, 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 oh. Segway. So, uh, Michael, you got over to the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater on 45th Street to see Betrayal. Peter and I are actually seeing it uh, this afternoon after we record, so we'll talk about it next week. So, Michael, what's your thoughts on Betrayal? Yes, I'm going to be out for uh, the, of the podcast for two weeks, so I'll, I'll just give my thoughts now and uh, not in great detail, and then you guys can can fill in when you see it. Uh, this is my favorite play by Harold Pinter. Um, I'm not sure why. I, I can't think of another case where there's one play uh, by a playwright that I like so much more than his others. Uh, I mean, he's, he's written several great plays that are acknowledged pretty much as modern classics. Uh, the other ones, I guess the most famous ones would be The Birthday Party, The Caretaker, and The Homecoming. But I, I think perhaps it's the subject matter and also the characters of Betrayal that I have always found tremendously compelling. Uh, and I have seen uh, all four of the Broadway productions. Uh, the first one was in 1980. I'm sorry, I had it here, and then I let me call it up again because I want to get my facts straight. Uh, uh, January 5th, 1980 through May 31st, 1980, at what um, was briefly called the Trafalgar mm-hmm. Theater. <laughs> uh, now the now the Nederlander. Do you remember how long it was the Trafalgar Peter? Just a year. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't remember the circumstances, but. Uh, Whatever. Uh, And that was a very uh, oddly cast production, I would say, Uh, you know, with really good people in it, but who you wouldn't necessarily think of in the same play, and especially one set in England. And then those three people were Roy Scheider, Raul Julia, and Blythe Danner. So, uh, but I did see that, and then subsequently we had a production in 2000 at the what oh look the american airlines theater (laughs) and that was with um i'm sorry i i had my oh yeah it's it's just ibdb i haven't uh, been able to figure it out how to yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Juliet Binoche, Liev Schreiber, and John Slattery. And then uh, just in 2013, we had a production at the Ethel Barrymore Theater, and that one had Daniel Craig, Rafe Spall, and Rachel Weiss. So it's there has been no lack of productions of Betrayal on Broadway and, and elsewhere, I'm sure. And it's really a very compelling play because uh, it, this story is is not a new one it's it's about a uh, uh, a 
an affair. Um, there is uh, the set. Well, one of the one of the central characters is Robert, played in this case by Tom Hiddleston, and he is married to Emma, played by Zowie Ashton. And uh, Emma has a, a long term affair with a man named Jerry, played by Charlie Cox. I guess uh, one twist here is that Jerry and Robert are best friends and actually knew each other before uh, uh, Emma came into the picture. So that is one twist on it. But the big, huge, tremendous twist is that the play moves backward in time chronologically uh, from actually two years after the end of the affair. uh, And then it moves backwards in, in consecutive scenes to the night when the affair began uh, kind of unexpectedly in uh, in a in a bedroom during a party uh, so it's it's really uh, I mean we can think of many other plays that have played with time in this way or in similar ways uh, merrily we roll along of course immediately comes to mind and 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 of course the musical of merrily we roll along was based on the play of the same title which would have predated betrayal by quite a few years so it wasn't a new concept but uh pinter really went to town with it and i think he used it um for tremendous emotional effect we uh we see these things happening in in reverse order and we see uh cause and effect and we see um the things that were referred to uh you know in the in the chronologically later scenes actually happen and that that in itself is so tremendously powerful, but also, of course, his writing is so stellar that it would. I'm sure it would be a, a very, very interesting and engaging and compelling play, even if it were played forward. And I wonder if that's ever been done in uh, in rehearsals, maybe for one of these productions. I, I'm 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 told that that's sometimes a technique that's used uh, in rehearsing a, a play that plays with time. Um, what else? Uh, that this uh, uh, the cast is really really just great and this is an extremely minimalist production uh maybe one of the most minimalist i've ever seen on broadway directed by jamie lloyd and uh there's base almost nothing on stage other than the actors a few chairs um one scene has some wine glasses um there's one scene in which uh two of the characters appear to be having dinner uh with a few props there, but it's it's just the words. And the other thing that that is so great in this production, and I assume is the director's innovation, is that all three are on stage at all times. But um, yeah, so even in an extended scene between only two of them, the third person will be on stage somewhere, uh, but not not really observing and not and certainly not reacting uh it's supposed to i guess just show us that 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 in a in a case like this where there is an affair there are oh there are always three people 
quote unquote in the oh, room. That's nice. Yeah. That's yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, and really and and also, but the decision not to have the other person react, I think, uh, you know, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. And it would have been a really bad idea to have the third person react. Uh, I, I think that would have been a big mistake. But, you know, it also struck me um, while watching this uh, at at certain times my eye would go to the third person who was just standing there not doing anything and i thought that must be one of the hardest things to to ask an actor to do on stage to just stand there during a lengthy scene between two other people and not react uh, and and not even necessarily seem like uh he or she is hearing what's happening uh, would you agree yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you, you, uh, I, when you think about it, I, I <laughs> that, that must be much, much harder than any kind of regular acting you would do. So kudos to all the, these, these three. And again, let me mention them. Tom Hiddleston, just fantastic as Robert and the Zowie Ashton, who is new to me as Emma and Charlie Cox, whom I've seen in a couple of things, but I hope to see a lot more of him as Jerry. And there is a, um, a fourth character in the script who, who appears a waiter who appears briefly played by Eddie Arnold, believe it or not, uh, that's his name. There was a there was an old older actor with that name, but this is not that person. Uh, this is a younger person. And um, actually, uh, there is one other uh, character who has been added very briefly to this production, and I can't see any say anything more about that. But um, I really urge everyone to see it. It's uh, uh, oh, a, a, another aspect of the staging that is so fascinating is, um, uh, again, it's so minimalist. It's just um, three walls, really. It looks something like um, a, a gallery with bare walls, except the the, the walls are uh, have a have a, a very subtle design on them, which a, a gallery would not have. And um, it's meant to portray several locales in in. Uh, England and also Italy. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, there is a revolve. And and at first, uh, um, uh, for the first half of the play, I would say at least, uh, it, it only goes one way at a time. And you think, oh, you know, all right, it's just, it's just a revolve. And, and the actors are standing on it. And, and it revolves very slowly at some points. But then later on, uh, it it becomes apparent that there are actually two concentric circles of this revolve. And so uh, when necessary, uh, uh, you know, there's one scene where two of the actors are going one way and the other actor is going the other. And it's very, very, very effective. I would say this is one of the best directed productions I've ever seen. And the writing is so strong to begin with. And, and when you put the acting on top of that, it was just incredible. I have never heard a quieter mm. Broadway audience audience wow. in my life. Wow. And, and I don't know if you guys read, there was a news item recently about a performance that was, um, briefly ruined by a, a cell phone mm. going off at the worst possible time although almost any time in this time in the game. yeah um and i i can only imagine how it must have just just wrecked it entirely because it's so uh the audience is so so focused 
Um, so I hope that doesn't happen again. Uh, it, it didn't happen at my performance, I'm happy to say. And I really, really loved it, and I urge everyone to see it, and I can't wait to hear you guys' thoughts on it. Okay. So that is uh, Betrayal over at the Jacobs. And uh, Peter and I, as I mentioned before, are seeing it this afternoon. So we'll talk about it again next week Mm -hmm. uh, and get more specific about it. Uh, Michael, you also had another hot ticket. You got over to the (laughs) Delacorte Theater to see the Public Works Hercules. um, Music by Alan Menken, lyrics by David Sippel. So tell us about this much sought after ticket. Well, this is a public works production, which I think is one of the best ideas that the public ever had. Uh, I think it exemplifies everything that the public should be. And really, uh, I I just wanted to say that to begin with, uh, regardless of – uh, how each of the productions turns out, uh, you know, of course, there have been they've been they varied, I would say, in terms of quality of the quality of the writing, quality of the production. But I've enjoyed every one of them. And what they do is they bring, uh, you know, a core of professionals to play the leads and then they uh, find from various uh, community groups and uh, I guess maybe schools and other uh, places like that, uh, a, a huge ensemble <laughs> um, of singers and dancers and s- sometimes uh, tumblers and acrobats. And, uh, and they put them all together. And, and sometimes there are, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there are like, I, you know, I didn't count it, but I think it's almost 200 people on stage at one mm-hmm. point. And, that of course, that theater is so fabulous to begin with, the Delacorte. And I was there on a beautiful night, and the uh, Belvedere Castle has been has been also something that has been recently renovated, and it was just magical to be there to begin with. Um, this is uh, a uh, this was a Disney movie that was not one of my favorites, and in fact, though I did see it when it came out, I uh, it struck me that I had almost no memory of it. Um, I remembered the song "Go the Distance," uh, a Her- Hercules song, "Go the Distance," which I think is a really wonderful Alan Menken, David Zippel song. And then there's another song called "Zero to Hero." I think that's the yes, that is the title of it. Um, that I re- I remembered that one, and I remembered that Lilius White was one of the voices in the in the movie. Uh, I also remember that Roger Bart did the singing voice of Hercules in the movie. And that's kind of neat because in this production, he has uh, graduated. Is that the right right word? Uh, (laughs) To play Hades. Um, So I I think that is so neat. Um, And he was definitely one of the highlights of the production. He he played him as a very comic character. Um, I noticed many touches of Nathan Lane, with whom, of course, he has worked. Uh, And he really... um, he really brought a lot to it. So he, uh, I, I was just so happy to see him. And, and, and interesting, of course, that um, Hades is now, a, well, well, at least briefly a, a character in in two 
major mm-hmm. productions mm-hmm. in the city because we have mm-hmm. well 80s town mm-hmm. and and actually this um this production of hercules and again i'm not that familiar i don't remember the movie hardly at all but this one has a, a plot point that is actually similar uh, to a major plot point in Hades Town, uh, so it's nice to see and interesting to see the um, uh, to compare the two of them and see how they're handled. Uh, the the whole score, I would say, is is really really very good, especially the new song. So often when when um, a, a movie is adapted uh, into a stage production and, and songs are added, very frequently the the new ones just don't pass muster or, or just can't hold a candle to the original. I would say that's not the case here. And there are several new songs. Uh, and really, you know, I mean, Alan Menken and, and David Zippel, I think, um, turned out to be a, 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 an excellent team. And I hope this actually spurs them on to, to more, uh, and, you know, newer creations, because this has gone so well that I, I think that that they really, really work well together. Uh, and of course, um, Alan Menken had his brilliant partnership with uh, with Howard Ashman that <laughs> that sadly ended with Mr. Ashman's death. And since then, he has found several other wonderful people to work with. And I would put David Zibel at the top of that list. Um, this Hercules has a book by Christopher Diaz, which I um, – I, I want to say, uh, first of all, the, the evening was tremendously entertaining, it, it, you know, in, in every way. Uh, so any fault that I would find in it, I, I, ju- I just wanted to say that first. There were um, – one could certainly find flaws in it. Uh, the the tone kept shifting rather wildly from silly comedy to, uh, you know, to more em- emotionally uh, – weighty material and uh also things like that there didn't seem to be any um attempt to coordinate the costuming uh to have any any kind of mm-hmm. cohesive style but i i think that was a choice i mean i think yeah, that was, sure a, cho- was. a choice uh, that might have been motivated partly by uh economics but but the, but also it kind of works because mm-hmm. it is such a mishmash of uh, you know, an ancient Greek myth with very, very, very modern, up to the minute um, influences. There were there were references, like brief references to, uh, uh, you know, to to modern. There, at one point, um, Hercules, I, I think, did a little dance to a, a what must be <laughs> what must be a, a, an up to the minute song that I actually didn't know. But as soon as he started to do it, the entire audience went nuts. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Um, but speaking of Hercules, played really, really beautifully by Jelani Aladdin. Um, I had read a, a, a couple of reviews, uh, professional reviews, and also uh, non—you know—just uh, j- uh, regular audience comments about the show. And 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 it's funny um, that some of them didn't really talk about him very much, which led me to think that maybe, oh, gee, maybe he's not that good. Oh, he was wonderful. He was just charming and with a beautiful voice and and really wonderful in both the comi- comedy scenes and the dramatic scenes. So he was terrific. And Christopher Rodriguez as uh, his love interest and uh, the aforementioned Roger Bard. We also have one uh, other, lots of other wonderful people 
Ramona Keller, Rima Webb, Tamika Lawrence, Taisha Thomas, um, uh, oh, Jeff Hiller uh, as Panic and Nelson Chimilio as Pain, uh, the two of the Hades minions. They were they were just hilarious. Um, also, our old friend James Monroe Eagleheart as Phil Philoctetes. Um, so it was it was just a wonderful night, and I'm so glad I got in. And I have heard um, I'm not sure exactly how they're doing this, but the public is making an extra, extra, extra special effort to try to get everyone in if they possibly can and not to leave anyone um, waiting on the, you know, on the cancellation or the standby line or whatever that's called. So um, I, I, I really recommend it. I do wonder um, if it will have a future life. Um, the uh, previous public works have not ha- had a future life that I can th- think of except for Hair, which I believe was the first one. Isn't that right? The first what? I'm sorry. I think I think when they did Hair yeah. uh, in the park for only like three performances, yeah. uh, I think that was the first public works production. And then, of course, that that came to Broadway, uh, that Diane Paulus production. But at any rate, um, we'll see if this Hercules does have a future life. Um, but if it does not, it still gave a tremendous amount of pleasure to everyone involved and uh, directed by Lear de Bessonet, by the way, choreography by Chase Brock. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm so, so, so glad I saw it. Michael, uh, could you uh, please read the names of the 200 people in the ensemble? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> in order of appearance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by mother's maiden name, please. Thank you. <laughs> oh, the um, the Broadway inspirational voices were also in it, yeah. on top of on top of everything. Uh, so it was just a just. I mean, when all those people are on stage at once, uh, which I guess probably only happens at the very beginning and the very end, maybe once or twice during it. It's just extraordinary. Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah. All right. So. Um... That's the Public Works Hercules and the last performances, I think, this afternoon, this evening, this evening. Um, so hopefully you have had a chance to uh, see it or will have seen it tonight. Peter, you got down to, uh, what was it, Cherry Lane, where Red Bull Theater presents American Moor? Mm-hmm. I and, did. So tell us about that. <laughs> Well, uh, this is a play by Keith Hamilton Cobb, and it stars Heath Hamilton Cobb, and he's done a, an extraordinarily good job in writing a vehicle for himself. There is another character in it, uh, played by Josh Tyson, and what this is, is um, an audition. Uh, Josh Tyson plays the director, who, unlike Zach in Chorus Line, sits in a seat actually halfway through in the Cherry Lane Theater, so we do see him uh, all the time. And um, Keith Hamilton Cobb plays an actor who's, um, he's an African-American actor, and he's hoping to play Othello. And it's 90 minutes of essentially the actor um, tussling with the director on how Othello should be played, because the director is a white man, and um, the actor is a black man, and as a result, 
the actor has certain preconceived notions of what Othello should be that he feels that the white director cannot understand. And the white director can't understand why the black actor can't see what he wants to do. Uh, it's fair to both sides. It really is. I mean, one would take the um, question, well, you know, would a director really put up with this, um, all these rebuttals? Wouldn't you say thank you for coming in very, very shortly after it begins? Well, part of that is addressed by the fact that the lights change many times during the show and we get the interior thoughts of the actor. So it's not a case where they are literally um, arguing for 90 minutes. That, of course, would never happen. But truth to tell, even the little bit of um, rebuttal that the actor gives would certainly get him out of that room um, in no time flat. So you really have to suspend disbelief to essentially hear the argument between a black man and a white man on what Othello is and who Othello is and who Othello should be. Uh, (laughs) Certainly, Keith Hamilton Cobb knows, knows very well what he wants to say and how to play it. I will take issue with the fact that at times he comes very close to tears, and that violates the rule that if you want the audience to cry, you cannot. Um, Well, maybe it's not a rule. I I think it's a good uh, practice. But anyway, that bothered me slightly um, because he's a strong man. Uh, This guy has spent time in the gym. He's a big guy, as most Othellos are. And um, so that's the only tiny, tiny, tiny criticism of his performance, because otherwise he is magnificent. Um, So here's an actor who can really write to his strengths. Magnificent. It's a phenomenal performance. Uh, And so for that reason alone, it's definitely worth seeing, because he is extraordinarily powerful. Um, (laughs) But uh, you will find yourself saying, "Mm, yeah, I'm having a hard time believing um, that this would go on for as long as it does. And there are a few false endings, too. You say, okay, we're wrapping up. No, we're not. Uh, so it's it's a little um, – <laughs> it's going to seem even longer than 90 minutes to some people. But still, this is such a powerful, impressive, dynamic performance that it really demands to be seen. And um, I know the awards committees are going to have problems because <laughs> best solo performance – in a sense, it is um, because the director has maybe two mm, percent of the lines, one percent of the lines. Uh, he just makes an occasional suggestion. Why don't you try it this way? What I'd like to see is that type of thing. So um, it really is so close to a solo performance. It should be in that category. But um, purists may say, well, there's another actor in the house, so it's not. Whatever the case, Keith Hamilton Cobb should be recognized at awards time. But I'd like to see those tears go away. Okay, so that is uh, playing through October 5th, is it? Uh, yes, October 5th down at the Cherry Lane Theater, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You know, Peter, I just wanted to interject. You've said that several times, and uh, for what it's worth, I, I don't agree that the only way uh, to make the audience cry is not to cry. And I think that it can be very effective to see an actor actually do that if it, you know, if it seems motivated. So I, for what it's worth, I, I don't I mean, I don't think that's as much of a rule as as you think it is. Uh, I, you know, I can think of many uh, cases where I have seen actors cry on stage and when they do it effectively, it, it's tremendously moving. Yeah. Rule is, to, I, I, I think I 
corrected myself when after I said rule, but anyway, um, it it uh, I, I, rule is too severe. Um, but um, I think I correct myself with the word practice. Guidelines. Um, that said, uh, <laughs> um. <laughs> policy maybe uh mm. but uh yeah, yeah all right i'm going to i'm going to agree with you michael that um i can think of times when an actor cries that i do too but maybe it just came out of the blue so much that um it bothered me in that sense but oh yeah, yeah I, no no absolutely it yeah. if it doesn't seem motivated or if it or if it happens too often i would say then that would be not good <laughs> well sometimes uh michael when you're going to cry, you just have to make believe that things are going to be better. So uh, We could make believe. <laughs> I love you. You can Beautifully be. done. So you saw Make Believe at Second Stage. Uh, yes. Jan talked to Bess Wall on Broadway Radio uh, a few weeks oh. ago. And yeah. uh, we've uh, all kind of had different takes on make-believe, but what is your take on make-believe? What do you think of oh, the show? I'll have to go listen back to that. I, I hadn't had a chance to listen to um, what Jan had to say. I just loved it. Um, this is by Bess Wall, who's written several other plays, including Small Mouth Sounds, which I I missed, but I know that a lot of people loved it. So I thought, oh, gosh, you know, maybe I should get to this one. And then also, I had had a... Um, a friend uh, just spontaneously recommend this play to me uh, at a restaurant one night uh, and saying how much he adored it, uh, like really making a special point of it. And also um, the fact that the cast includes uh, four (laughs) very young actors, um, all of whom are extraordinary. Uh, I mean, there's one... uh, one of the actors maybe looks like he's about 13 or 12 or 13. Um, and then uh, there's another one who plays one of his sisters who's slightly younger. But then the two youngest, I, I mean, I didn't, I, 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 they don't give their ages. Um, and it's actually sweet to read their bios in, <laughs> in the playbill. But one of them looks like about five and the other one may be like, seven so it's really extraordinary and they play four uh children in a family who um when we first see them they're uh in what looks like it could be an attic uh or an upper upper story uh storage room of a house of their house and we and they are playing house um but there are no adults around and it takes a while to figure out what's what's going on there um let's see i don't uh i guess um i'm going to try to avoid the what i consider to be the major spoilers here but i i suppose there might be some uh in what i'm about to say so in case anyone wants to skip uh it turns out that the um there are no adults around because their dad is away on a business trip and apparently he's been um uh having an affair or affairs uh, with other women. And the mom uh, has apparently gotten disgusted and can't take it anymore and has just left and abandoned uh, the kids. So that is what's what we eventually learn is going on um, at the, in the first 
entire part of the play. Um, this is um, uh, there is no intermission, but there is very much a uh, a center point at which uh, the the children change into adults, and um, we see. Um, we see uh, them as adults, except there's one of them that we don't see. And I have to be very careful here. Uh, I won't say why, but one of them we do not see. And here is a, a really, really fascinating thing that probably took a lot of planning. Um, th- there is another character who appears in the second part when when everyone is is – an adult. Uh, and that other character has the same first name as the um, sibling that we no longer see. So therefore, if you are reading the program before you see the play, mm-hmm. you will it will not be evident mm-hmm. to you that mm-hmm. you that they're one of the children is not going to be seen as an adult. And not only that, are you ready for this? Um, but the uh, the the actor who plays the character that we hadn't seen before has a first name that uh, could sound like it's the name of a male or a female. So <laughs> that that even um, adds into the the ingeniousness of the writing uh, that Besswell has done. Uh, and this show, uh, by, I, I have to say, is extremely well directed by not one of my favorites, Michael Greif, but I think he did a stellar job here. Um, scenic design by David Zinn, costume design, Emilio Sosa, lighting, Ben Stanton, um, original music and sound by Bray Poor. And um, what else did I have to say about this? Uh, uh, it's about um, how learned behavior and uh, and things that happen in childhood can, you know, can affect mm-hmm. us throughout our lives. This this is not a, a new concept, but the way that it's shown here and the way it's depicted uh, with that tremendous gap uh, between the time periods of the two uh, periods that we see, which I would say is a be- maybe supposed to be like about. 35 years, something like that. Um, it's it's just extraordinary. Um, there are also, I would say, some similarities to Betrayal uh, in terms of uh, discussion of uh, the power of memory uh, and how sometimes uh, we remember things very clearly and then other times our memory uh, is not as clear. And um, although this play does not... Uh, go backwards in time uh it also has some of that 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 element that we have in betrayal of things happening um you know at a certain time and then years later uh coming back in some way and being referenced and it's just um you know it's it's tremendously powerful because in our own lives uh i I think we're not always 
so conscious of that because our lives move so slowly, I mean, relatively speaking, and so chronologically, and we don't uh, we don't always have that experience. Of course, it can happen when looking at a you know at, at old photos uh, or, or uh, an old diary, uh, and th- and that's when I think we uh, you know we we get in touch with with these things that that make us who we are. Uh, that's really what this play is about. And um, I think everyone will love it, but especially if you, um, uh, you know, if you have children uh, and see the, the way that they they make their own reality because they've been, you know, they, they obviously even before um, the mom left and the dad started going off and screwing around it seems like they had to really fend for themselves a lot and so they've created their own little family within their family uh and these these young actors are are, they're just incredible i mean it's it's amazing i can't imagine what the audition process was like Uh, but um really bravo to second stage it's one of the best things i've seen in a long time okay so uh, that is uh, Make Believe at the uh, second stage is Tony Kaiser Theater. Uh, that's the off-Broadway space on 43rd Street. And that's going to be playing through September 22nd. We'll have a link to that in the show note. So, Peter, you got mm-hmm. to see over <laughs> yeah. at the Signature Theater Lover L period, O period, V period, E period, R period. Is that some sort of acronym that they are explaining to us in the show? Absolutely. Um, Near the top of the show, Lois Robbins does have an acronym that she's created from uh, these five letters. And at the end of the show, she has a different acronym considering all that she's been through. So this is a one-person show, uh, and uh, Lois Robbins has written it as well. And she is simply telling the story of her life. Now... I'm afraid that all of us believe that the stories of our lives are fascinating and uh, that people just can't wait to hear them. And um, so many times we find that they're not so interesting and they're not worth hearing. I'll grant you that it starts off in a very atypical way. Um, Have you ever seen a woman masturbating on a washing machine? Um, I don't think so. This must be a first. And um, she does explain that uh, this is something she had been doing as a child and really got used to. So this is a very sexually uh, oriented show. And uh, she has a lot to say about her sex life and her relationships. However, um, most of them aren't that compelling. So it's so hard because there is a universality of what she's doing, but on the other hand, um, it's, it seems rather banal in most cases. Yeah, it, it, I, I was thinking if this were somebody I was sitting at at a table in a restaurant, it wouldn't be long before I would be gazing around the restaurant for the waiter to ask for the check. So at that point when that occurred to me, suddenly the show took a very different turn. And it dealt with a health crisis that she had. And at this point in the show, the show really, really becomes galvanizing. She does a beautiful job of talking about this point in her life. Wonderfully done. Very impressively written. Very impressively performed. But that's not the end of the show, and there's still more to go. And even though the show's only 75 minutes, the fact remains that what comes afterwards gets back to that 
old boring story of uh, her love life. So um, I can't say that this is something I'd really recommend. And you know, I have to say, this has to set the record for an actress who has long flowing hair, who pulls it back, and then it comes forward and she pulls it back again, and then it comes forward and she pulls it back. Part of the time, she even looks like she's wearing mutton chops. Um, the hair is um, so. Uh, but uh, you, you want to say, will you please get a clip and pull it back and let it stay there? Yeah. So that draw, drove me crazy, and uh, it may drive other theater goers crazy too. But uh, I'm afraid it just isn't what she thinks it is. Until that 10 minute sequence, 15 minute sequence, when it really comes together. So. Um, but is one-fifth of a show enough to make people want to see it? I'm afraid not. Okay, so uh, that is Lover over at the uh, Signature Center on 42nd Street. It's playing through November 2nd, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you uh, saw a production of Laughing Liberally. Is yes. this a... Uh, is this a subsequent production to the uh, productions that were around eight, ten years ago? Oh, um, I I don't know. I mean, Laughing Liberally is a producing organization. Uh, I uh, so I, I think it must be. Uh, was it that long ago? Uh, so I did a, a look for Laughing Liberally, and yes, I had a bunch of press thing. releases no. in 2011 and earlier. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, it's billed as a production of Laughing Liberally Off Broadway and Eric Krebs, and it is at St. Clements. And it's uh, the subtitle is "Make America Laugh Again," which uh, I, you know, I I, I love that mm-hmm. <laughs> subtitle. And uh, this, I mean, if, if there ever there was a case of preaching to the choir, it's this one because it's it just what it sounds like. It's comedy with a very liberal bent. Uh, tremendously anti-Trump. I think I, I, God only knows how many times his name was mentioned in vain <laughs> during this, uh, this show. Um, and I wanted to see it uh, for that reason, first of all, but also the anchor of the production is John Fugelsang, a comedian who, who I, I really enjoy uh, and have for many years. I think I may have seen one of his first ever gigs years ago he um as i recall he hosted the bistro awards uh and but he's become quite successful over the years and he is i believe in every single one of these performances uh the rest of the cast um kind of rotates and shuffles around but uh the and and actually the number of comics in each performance varies. But I saw, in addition to John, I saw Judah Friedlander and Ted Alexandro, um, and then also there was a, a woman who uh, briefly acted as the MC, and her name is Natalia Reagan. Uh, it was it was really wonderful. It, it started off with uh, you know an attempt to. Um, they actually came out and asked if there were any Trump supporters in the audience and believe it or not one guy um was brave enough to raise his hand and uh and john said well you know you know everyone is welcome here and you know we're not going to throw you out or anything like that um but it was um a really good evening uh of 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 these 
three basically three comics with very very different styles and all addressing uh, what's going on in the world today and occasionally uh, some other subjects but it was mostly political humor and um, and trying to uh, trying everyone's best to uh, make us laugh about what of course overall is a tremendously tragic and scary situation and I guess hope for um, the end of that as soon as possible uh, so I really I, I really recommend it they're going um, for a while, uh, for a while longer uh, let's see I think uh, through the 21st at least maybe longer and it is at st clement's and i uh, you know if you if you unless you <laughs> don't uh, you know think that your political leanings uh coincide with uh what the, what you're going to be hearing uh unless that's the case i would say absolutely to attend this all right so uh, the press release says it's 15 performances only through September 21st, but I'm not sure if that's the most up-to-date information. But you are also thinking September 21st? Yeah, that's the one I see uh, listed on the uh, – and they do list, uh, by the way, uh, on the website uh, exactly who is scheduled for each performance. So if there is a particular comic you think you might like to see, uh, you, can, you can get tickets for that night. Elaine Boozler. Uh, mm. is is scheduled to perform on the, uh, let's see, the 20th and the 21st. Uh, and there are some other names that uh, you might... Oh, Janine Garofalo. Uh, let's see, on the 17th. Uh, I'm just I'm just randomly going through the list here. There are there are some names that I guess are are better known than others, but I'm I'm sure that a, a, any night will be will provide much hilarity and and relief from what's happening in the country. All right. So uh, again, we'll have a link to that in the show notes so that you can get over there and check it out, Peter. We don't mm-hmm. often have a review from you regarding a film, but mm-hmm. this is a special film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is uh, Judy, which is going to be opening uh, at the end of the month. Uh, and let's hear it for the Rainbow Tour. I'm telling you, this is a terrific picture. Now, those Judy Garland's fans who hated End of the Rainbow, and Lord knows there were thousands. I mean, I, Wayne Bryan, who runs Music Theater of Wichita, we get along splendidly. And when I told him how I felt about End of the Rainbow, he gave me a look that not only indicated he disagreed with me, but he was ashamed of me for liking it. So <laughs> anyway, um, those people who hated it, I think are going to feel better about this picture entirely. It's a much more sympathetic uh, view of the controversial star. Um, in, in the stage play... Garland was difficult from her first entrance. Do this, do that, get me this, get me that, do what I say, don't question me, how dare you, it's just my nerves, on and on and on. And um, Tracy Bennett uh, gave a look at her, can't take your eyes off her performance, uh, and she supported uh, the playwrights. Uh, His name was uh, Peter Quilter, uh, thesis that Garland was an inadvertent monster. She didn't want to be, but um, by this point in her career, she was just um, insatiable. So anyway, um, but I 
that isn't the case at all in this picture. And I bring this up because it actually says that it's based on that play, End of the mm-hmm. Rainbow. It's really not. I mean, I get the impression, really, what happened was that Hollywood said, let, 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 let's just buy the property because who wants to listen to this playwright later and claiming that we stole something of his, you know, so let, let, let's just buy it. And, and that's it. So because there is inordinately little of um, End of the Rainbow in this. Um, first off, End of the Rainbow simply dealt with um, December 1968 when she's about to uh, do a concert in London. And um, things are uh, rather difficult and so on and so forth. But that doesn't happen for at least an hour into the film and maybe more. What you really do is get a tremendous backstory and a very effective one by this writer named Tom Edge who has really, uh, I, I think done not only his homework, but has um, achieved a graduate degree in uh, Judy Garland. So um, what happens is um, she's dead broke and she has custody of her two kids, Lorna and Joey, and uh, they go to the hotel where they're staying and they're told that, uh, no, you know, you haven't paid your bill and it's over. And she doesn't know what to do. And it's so interesting because the kids, beautifully played by two young people, are, you can tell that they have lost faith in her. They love her. And she loves them. Oh, she, it, 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 it's often been said that she was a very caring mother. And this comes through in the film beautifully, uh, that she's a very caring mother. And she uh, but they they've lost faith in her. I mean, and understandably so. She can think of nothing to do but go to Sid Love's house. Now, this is her previous husband, husband number three of the eventual five. And um and he doesn't want any part of her at all. He's willing to take the kids, but, you know, and he comes up with good reasons why he feels the way he does. The, the script is very fair to him um, in, in his uh, feelings. Well, the only job she can get is in London. And the problem is that the courts have said, uh, because she's such a controversial mother, that she cannot leave the country with the children. So she's going to have to leave the children, and she doesn't want to do that, not because of anything like um, I don't want the father to have him or I have this victory over me. She loves the kids. She wants to be with her children, and that's really significant to her. But she's broke. There's nothing she can do. She has to take the gig, and so that's going to be a real problem. So you see her there, and – uh, it, the struggles that she has um, in in making that concert happen is really where most of the film is. Uh, you can say that that's where End of the Rainbow was too, but you see this as opposed to hear it um, because, of course, the movie is able to take you on stage. Now, um, let's talk about who's playing Judy Garland, Renee Zellweger. Okay. All of us, I think, <laughs> said, what? <laughs> what? Um, I, oh, I, I can't picture her at all. Yeah? maybe it might take real severe doubt is four seconds to say, my God, she is tremendous. I mean, she looks just like her. I will admit that every now and then an expression comes through where you see Renee Zellweger. No question. Um, It's just for a fleeting second. But for the most part, Whoa. Now, as we learned from Forbidden Broadway, hair can really help. And the fact that she has the identical hairdo that Judy Garland was wearing at that point in time. And the the lipstick is very right, too. Uh, strangely enough, that helps as well. But my 
God. I mean, uh, yes, James, I see very few movies uh, because I'm always at the theater. I mean, I literally went 401 times last season. So I am in no position to say, oh, my God, she's going to win the Oscar. Oh, my God, this picture is going to win the Oscar. But I won't be the slightest bit surprised if there are nominations and even wins. Um, I won't be surprised because Renee Zellweger is amazing. She must have watched every one of the 32 Garland movies and assorted short subjects. I mean, she just had to because, I mean, everything is there. Um, and, um, well, um, she even she even is left-handed, I mean, which Judy Garland was. I didn't know that, but when I noticed that she was left-handed in the movie, I thought, let me see if that's actually the case. Yes, she was. Okay. So she has that head that shakes slightly from side to side, uh, the neck that's sort of a trajectory like a giraffe's, the left arm that lifts seemingly involuntarily with a fist at the end, you know, um, a, a hint of osteoporosis, the smile, the smile that's a mixture of bravery and passion, uh, the sudden burst of laughter, the drag of the cigarette that reveals that she's a chain smoker. Uh, it's uncanny work. It's amazing. Um, and um, the way she stalks the stage as if she owns it is very impressive, too. But there are two moments that are so impressive when we don't even see her face. And a great line comes up in the first one I'm going to mention. Because she has not had an easy time of it. And her assistant, um, a, a woman played by um, Julie Butler, I think, something like that. Anyway, um, the woman uh, who's her assistant, Rosalind, is walking down the hallway. Now, understand, we're only seeing them from behind. The camera is following them. And the assistant is trying to make the best of a bad situation and says, well, you've been under a lot of pressure. And a great line Garland has saying, since I was two. <laughs> and again, you don't see her face. But by this point in the movie, you know what that face looks like the way she says it. That's what's so extraordinary. Similarly speaking, she's on stage. The camera's behind her. We only see her back. She's looking out at the uh, auditorium. And um, she says, wow, four balconies. And the assistant, trying to make her feel better, relates something that um, is, is the case and knows that it's the case and says, well, how many were there in Carnegie Hall, fully knowing there were five? <laughs> and the way that Zellweger says, again, her back's to us, five you know from that very intonation that what she's saying is, yes, but that was nearly eight years ago, and I'm not the person I was then. So that's really something that's extraordinarily too, uh, done, too. So an amazing, amazing performance. And uh, I, what's really nice, too, is Finn Whitrock as Mickey Deans. Now, it's easy to say that uh, Mickey Deans, substantially younger, um, latched on to her because um, he, he was this rabid fan or felt greatness by association. Um, we can't quite say he was a fortune hunter, not at that stage uh, of the game. But the screenwriter really makes him a person who genuinely loves this woman and does the best he can for her. There's one point where he really tries to do something extraordinary and the deal falls through and she immediately turns on him immediately. And he, for like three or four sentences, tries his best not only to calm her down, but to really also indicate that he did the best he could. And only after she keeps going at it does he finally explode with the facts, the facts that we have seen. 
that we have seen. So, I mean, it's 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 really a triumph every step of the way. And the scenes going back in time, we go back to the Wizard of Oz um, and Louis B. Mayer talking to her and Louis B. Mayer using a word, uh, an F word we don't hear anymore, um, referring to her father. And um, he really is... <laughs> his demeanor is not as tough as his words. He knows how to deliver terrible words uh, while seeming very matter of fact. So really, um, I I was really mesmerized. I felt I was in the theater for five minutes. I wasn't. It was 110 minutes long. It doesn't seem it. And um, I hope that everybody um, is as enthusiastic as I am about this property. Peter, that is a great report. I, I have not seen the film, but I have seen the trailer several times, and, and I thought it, it looked like it might be really great. And as you know, nobody hated that play more than right, me. Right, right. And uh, I mean, one, oh, yeah. well, one, one thing about uh, one obvious difference is that the play, and I, and I looked it up again just to remind myself, it was all set in the one hotel room, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously they had a tremendous amount of latitude to add. I do wonder, I mean, I hate to think because I hated that play so much. I hate to think um, that this uh, Peter Quilter person got money uh, from the screenplay sale just so that they wouldn't have to worry about him because all of that stuff is public record and has been written about many times. But I think uh, I suspect that you're probably right that that's why they – uh, that's why they did it. They thought it would be less. Um, it, it would be. It wouldn't be worth the risk that he mm-hmm. might make a stink uh, if they if they did not pay him uh, some kind of rights money. Sure. And again, it's not that I've read this or anything like that. I'm just inferring because I right. really expected it to be so much like End of the Rainbow. When you when you see that uh, a play is going to be adapted um, into a movie, you, you just assume it's going to be basically the same thing. You know, not at all. Hmm. All right. So that is uh, Judy. Just one word. Mm-hmm. Although we don't need anything further beyond uh, that. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, going to be in select theaters in September 27th. I'll have a link to the official website in the show notes so you can uh, watch the trailer and uh, see if it's coming to a theater near you. Um, this week I got over to 5090s 59 to see Tech Support, which uh, Peter reviewed last week, and I went because of Peter's review. Uh-oh. Uh, no, no, no. And... <laughs> Uh, for the most part, uh, I agreed with everything that Peter had said, and it's an interesting take on it, and especially because I spend so much of my life in technology every single day. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was interested to see, you know, how the other half lives. People who, <laughs> rather than uh, work on technology, fight with technology, and and how uh, – it's a very interesting story about how this – how technology has enveloped this woman's life and uh, what it was like to remove the technology technology i sort of felt like um uh a uh not miracle on 34th street but a wonderful life it's a wonderful life type of thing yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where george bailey says what if this never ever happened and she said <laughs> what if she never ever had technology in her life and sort of you know the structure of the story happens like that and she goes back in time and lives life without technology and uh, different things happen in her life um 
I'm bringing this up because I was really uncomfortable about the way they portrayed the tech support person who was stereotypically from of Indian descent in a call center in India. And I, you know, I just, I just don't know what to think about that. And I was wondering if, what your takes on it are, Michael and Peter. I know that, Michael, you haven't seen the show, but Peter, you saw the show. But generally, when somebody of another culture is portrayed in a stereotypical way in a play, I don't know what to think about that. And certainly, uh, you know, having worked in technology for so many years as I have, I've run across many uh, call centers and uh, and there have been lots of jokes back and forth about uh, broken English and things like that. But I think the thing to the thing that to keep in mind there is that um, if you're speaking with somebody who speaks broken English, but English might be their third or fourth language that <laughs> it's still it's still two or three languages more than you speak exactly that's right exactly i speak yes, english yes. that's mm-hmm. all that i speak and i and i work with clients all over the world who speak many many different languages and uh i'm i, I feel lucky that they're speaking english to me you know because i don't have to learn sure. uh, french or chinese or sure. italian or various different things like that but mm-hmm. i i thought that was an interesting uh, takeaway. I just felt awkward about every time the Indian person came. Uh, it was actually through a speakerphone. The, every time the Indian uh, tech support person was speaking on stage, I kind of felt a little awkward about that whole situation. But um, there is tech support over at Fifty Nine East Fifty Nine, and it's playing through September twenty first. So if you get a chance to see it, uh, you know, let me know what you think about it as well. All right, so before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can listen to Broadway Radio's offerings. And I'd really love it if you could give us a, uh, a five-star review on these uh, services so that it'll help other people to uh, find our shows as well. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at Broadway Radio's show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, what famous musical mentions Santa Claus in two different songs? Guy Matthews, Ben Koch, and Mike Meany guessed Annie. But while Santa Claus is mentioned in It's It's the Hard Knock Life, only Santa's appears in A New Deal for Christmas. So what I was thinking of was Gypsy, because Gypsy has Rose referring to Santa Claus in both Mr. Goldstone, Santa Claus is Sitting Here, and in Everything's Coming Up, Roses, Everything's Coming Up, Sunshine, and Santa Claus. Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Brigadude, Jeff Valenga, Ingrid Gammerman, John Dillingham, and Fred Abramowitz. However, 
Alyssa Marr, followed by, <laughs> yes, Tony Janicki, Stephen Brown, Chris Skiles, Josh Israel, and Mike Meany pointed out that Rent has Today for You stating, look, it's Santa Claus, hold your applause, and in Christmas Bells, we hear no Santa Claus. When I told Tony Janicki that, yes, he was right, but I had something else in mind, he went into overdrive. He eventually figured out the gypsy what was on my mind, but while he was at it, <laughs> <laughs> he noted that Elf has the fake Santa's lament because nobody cares about Santa Claus. And young Michael assuredly sings, without a doubt, there is a Santa Claus. And to really show how smart this guy is, how about his noting that in Here's Love, the musical version of Miracle on 34th Street, there is that man over there is Santa Claus and my state. Now, if you listen to my state, you'll say, wait, where's the Santa Claus? Uh, you know, if you take out the cast album. But Tony is so smart that he knows that my state is truncated on the cast record but in performance includes the line, no Virginia, there is no Santa Claus. To paraphrase another lyric from Here's Love, Mr. Janicki, take a bow. All right. <laughs> so this week's question, what musical that ran fewer than two weeks on Broadway had an opening number that became a Grammy-winning number one hit? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Come true.